If you would, take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 6. We are going to... We were traveling down the highway in the sermon that we're... or in the series that we're looking at right now. We're actually going to pull over to a really nice and interesting rest stop and, and, and hang out for a little bit. And this may take two or three Sundays for us to capture... Because what I'm going to show you today and explain to you today and walk you through today is going to have you leaving scratching your head. You're going to say, I've never heard that before. Or maybe you have, I don't know. I hope you have. But you may look through and you may look at your Bible and you say, I've never read that before. And it's been sitting there all these years for us. So we're picking up in Romans chapter 6. And if you remember, Paul has given us a very succinct but powerful formula of what it is to live the Christ life. Remember, one of the trappings of the phrase, the Christian life, is that it's about how well you are doing. I beg you, get that out of your mind. It is not about improving the flesh. When we talk about the Christ life, we're talking about what Christ is doing in and through us. And that's what we want to see. Those are the things that last for eternal glory. Those are the things that really matter. Those are the things that once you see it all into motion, you're stepping back and going, good grief, I can't believe that I'm here, but it's all happening. It must be the hand of God doing it. And that's what you want. To step back and recognize that God in His grace is using you for His glory simply because you know that you're dead to sin. Number two, you've considered yourself dead to sin and alive to Him because of Jesus Christ. But number three, most importantly, with those first two in mind, instead of presenting the members of our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, we've turned away from those things. We say, no, God, you use my mind, my mouth, my eyes, my hands, my heart for your glory. I want them to be used for righteous purposes. And it's all based upon the glorious standing that we have and being dead to sin and alive through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we left off at a very particular place about just as we used to present our bodies in unrighteous ways, why not turn around and present our bodies in righteous ways? With the same fervency, with the same planning, dealing with the same inconvenience that we had before. So I'm actually using my marked up pages, that's why I got to get back here. I got all kinds of It's like a deck of cards in my hands. But I want to start in chapter 6, verse 15, where the new question is. We're going to read forward and complete the chapter, and then we're going to go back, talk about it a little bit, and then we're going to take our little rest stop. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Now, why is that? Watch his explanation. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now, I want you to think about this. Because if our obedience, whether to sin or to righteousness, occurs, it's ultimately revealing what we value and what we highly esteem. Does that make sense? If we are obeying our flesh and we're presenting the members of our body for instruments of unrighteousness and we're involved in sin, what we're ultimately saying is I believe that sin 
is a greater answer, a greater satisfaction, entails more promise, is going to reap greater benefits. And we actually have a label for that. It's called unbelief. It is us operating in unbelief to the truth is clearly established. So you're slaves to whoever you obey. But it says here, either to sin resulting in what? Death. Or of obedience resulting in? Righteousness. There are the options for the Christians. Now there's some people say, wait, he's talking about believers and unbelievers here. We're too far in the book to go there. He's already talking to believers here. So now the choice lies in your hands. Knowing that you're dead to sin, knowing that you're alive to God through Christ, those are established facts. If you are convinced that those things are true, now you have an option. Will I operate in belief and so have righteousness be my part? Or will I operate in unbelief and find out that I'm actually a servant of sin? Now we move forward. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. Why is that? Because Christians are supposed to grow. That's the reason why. To that form or that kind or that pattern of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of of your flesh. In other words, he's trying to use a word picture that would have been common in the day so that they could communicate and understand it. But it's so much greater than settling for an earthly analogy. He says here, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in, what's the word, church? sanctification. And the idea there is holiness. What is the product of submitting yourself and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness? You become more set apart from the world. You begin progressing in your set apartness. And that's what the idea of being holy is. Holy is not you breathe real deep, you sit in a lotus pose, and you kind of float every once in a while three or four inches from the ground. That's not holiness. That's weird. Okay, holiness is I'm starting to see that the world is becoming increasingly strange because my submission to God and presenting the instruments that I have as righteousness, my body's actually being used for his purposes. It is now starting to change my thinking and my mind is becoming renewed according to the word. I'm becoming more convinced of truth. And the more convinced of the light I am, the more dark that the darkness is. Everybody with me? Okay, don't fall off the train. Here we go. I'm so glad my brother is here from Kentucky. Listen to him in the back. If he says amen, you probably should have said it too. And if you didn't, you can still confess. It's okay. Verse 20, here we go. Four, here's your causal conjunction, an explanation. When you were slaves of sin, think back. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you were a slave to sin, Righteousness was not an option for you because you couldn't do righteous things. You couldn't be good enough. Your heart was never going to be sincere enough. That's one thing that I think is one of the, one of the craziest lies I've ever heard. Well, they're sincere. You can be sincere and still be lost. It doesn't matter. Emotion gets you nowhere. It is only a decisive 
interaction with Jesus Christ that makes the person different. That's it. That's all. There is no other way. So if that's the case, before when you were a slave to sin, you didn't even have to worry about a realm of righteousness. You were alienated and outside of it. All you could do is sin, and all you did was sin. But look where he goes in 21. Therefore, and good Bible students ask what question? What's that therefore? If that's the case, what conclusion do we come to? What benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is what? Death. When you were a slave to sin, what was the fruit that came out of that? I guarantee you one thing. It was all in a category called death. And whether that be works that hit a brick wall head on, whether that be the fact that the sin that you committed was actually in danger of killing you, threatening your physical life, if all of it was being reaped for destruction, however you want to say it, because you're alienated from righteousness, there is nothing good coming out. Not a thing. But notice how he flips this. And pay attention to the wording, because here's where you're going to get messed up. Verse 22, But now... Having been freed from sin at our conversion and enslaved to God, thank God for a new master, you derive your benefit, you get your product result, your fruit, your advantage, resulting in, there's the word again, sanctification, which means what? Holiness. Now watch this. And the outcome, eternal life. Now pause for a second because you might not know what just happened. When we were alienated from righteousness and dead in sin, all we did was serve sin and the outcome of that was death. But when conversion takes place, we're now freed from sin, we're enslaved to God, and now that we are able to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness and be used for righteous purposes, sanctification takes place, yes? Holiness takes place, yes? It's God doing that, setting us apart as we are submitting ourselves in obedience. But isn't eternal life something you receive at the moment you believe in Christ? Why does he say that the outcome of this process is eternal life? Hold on to it, you ready? Because what Paul means in Romans by eternal life is that eternal life is a reward to be reaped for faithfulness, not something you receive automatically at the moment of faith. You say, I've never heard that before. How many people have ever heard that before, that eternal life is a reward? This is going to be a fun three weeks. I love it. Corey, you've heard it because we went through it, right? Is everybody ready for a good ride? Let's finish this chapter for a summary statement. So notice how he wants to summarize the general tenets. For the wages of sin is death. We covered this yesterday in evangelism training. By the way, August 1st, coming up this Saturday evangelism training. Sign up. I think we had a good time yesterday. How many people attended? How many people thought it was a good time? Art. If Art thought it was good, you should be here. By the way, has everybody noticed it's brighter in this room? Art went through every one of these lights and put in four and a half inch extensions so that more light would be in the room. Yes. 
He was presenting himself as an instrument for righteousness so that you would have more light in your life. See how I put that together? Crazy. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because eternal life is imparted to the believer at the moment of faith. Is it a free gift? Yes, it is. But it will not be an enjoyed experience in your life unless you are presenting or yielding your body as an instrument of righteousness consistent with your identity in Christ. Now here's the question. What we would normally do if you were in a hermeneutics class, we would talk about concentric circles. And we would say anytime that you're going to study something like this, the phrase eternal life, you would start with that phrase. And you would get you out of concordance and you would go through the New Testament and you would ask every time that eternal life is brought up, you document all the verses you go through, you search every one of them and read them in context so that you can come to a full understanding, what is the New Testament teaching me about the idea of eternal life? And you would start with the same author in the same book if you could. Let's look at every occurrence of eternal life in Romans. You see one in 622, and it's obvious that it's an outcome from work done. Why? Because you are presenting your bodies for God's purposes. You then in 623 have a general statement that is brought up about this idea of saying that wages of sin is death, but God has given you eternal life as a free gift. Are you using the free gift that he's giving you is the idea. Now, you might remember this. Turn back to chapter 5. And we want to look at two verses in particular that coincide with one another. They actually explain one another as parallels. In Romans chapter 5, look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, who's the one that brought transgression here? Adam. And we say, thanks a lot, Adam, right? And death is a reigning factor. You can't escape it. He introduced it into the situation when it was never there before, and now we've got this problem. So just as domineering as death was, look what it says after that. Much more, and if you remember we talked about, think about the idea that you're taking a few steps up on a staircase. Much more, those who receive, everybody see that word receive? You have to receive it. Here it is. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Is that life now or is that life in the future? We're to, well, it could be both. But when we see 21, we're going to talk about reigning now. Grace can reign in your life now. You have to receive grace. You have to receive the gift of righteousness, righteousness that's given to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He purchases it. It's his perfect work. He gives it to you as a free gift. How do you receive it? John 1, 12, you believe. He gave as many of those who received him who believed in his name. That's what it is. Believing in him is receiving that gift. Now watch what happens here. Notice it says, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now skip down to 21. Probably 20 and 21. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, isn't that what we just saw in verse 17? Sin reigning in death because Adam sinned? Just as sin was dominating our lives, leading to death. Look what it says right after that. And so grace would reign through righteousness to 
Notice there's a destination out ahead. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that if grace is reigning in your life, you start to reap the reward benefits of eternal life in the here and now. It's not just a future possession to be had. It's an experience to be manifested because Jesus Christ is living through you. Now, let's not desecrate by any means whatsoever the idea that eternal life is a free gift. But before we hit 16, let's back up to 14 and get a running start into it. Just to get a little bit of context, watch this. John 3, 14, 15, 16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Everybody remember? The people got bit by the snakes because they were whiners and complainers. I walked in the door yesterday, I go, it's so hot. Nathaniel looked at me and goes, you need to take a nap, Dad. Like, if you're going to be whiny like that, just go ahead and go to bed. So I did. I took an hour-long nap. It was glorious. But remember, they whined. They complained. God's going to teach them a lesson. He sends serpents out to bite them, to discipline them. And then Moses erected a bronze serpent, and the command was, look and live. Look at the serpent and live. No works involved. Just as that happened. So anyone that would believe in Christ, when they look at him, they live. When they believe is how he relates the look, the believe, and they have eternal life, free gift. And then we know John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's something that you have at the moment of faith. Notice that no works are brought up here whatsoever. How about John 5? Turn it over to John 5. It's for a good assurance verse in evangelism training. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has already eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Any works for that? None. It's a free gift that God gives eternal life. How about we turn over to 640, next chapter. Chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Praise God. Eternal life, a free gift. How about John 647? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has what? Eternal life, a free gift that is given. How about this one? John 10. Look at John 10. And notice I'm pulling all these out of the gospel of John. Why is that? Because the gospel of John is the only book in your Bible that was written for lost people. It was written for the purpose of bringing people to faith in Christ. John chapter 10, look at 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. A free gift, eternal life. How about chapter 20? Look at John 20.
And this is the purpose statement of his gospel. Look at verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, and that's the signs. The signs written in John's gospel were for the purpose of provoking the heart and making people realize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He alone is the Savior. It says, but these have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What's the requirement for life? Believing in Christ. It's a free gift. Everybody see this. It's undisputed, right? Out of all the lists of the idea of eternal life in the New Testament, almost 40% of them point to the idea of it's a free gift you receive at the moment of salvation. We're all really clear on that. We don't have a problem with that. That's great. No works involved whatsoever. He freely gives it. Now do me a favor and turn back to John chapter 10, because he says something a little bit before that that we know, but I wonder if sometimes we've glossed over that situation. And I want to show you this before I hit the other requirement in Romans, because if not, it will mess us up. John chapter 10, and take a look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now, if you were marking in your Bible, you'd put, that's bad, right? But watch what the contrast is here. He says, I came that they may have life consistent with everything we've seen so far, yes? Now watch this. Not just that they may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. In other words, Jesus came to give you life and that is grand and glorious, yes? That's not all he came to do. Remember, God is a giver and God wants to give and God wants to give, and God has actually given everything so that all of his children are fully equipped and will be successful if they simply know who they are in Christ and present themselves for his uses to heights unknown of what it is to live an abundant life, to have life to the full, not just forever eternity with him, that's going to be great. But the idea of living in such a way now in obedience with the scriptures that you actually find the quality of your life, and I'm not talking about material stuff, the quality of your life is improved to such that you are actually meriting an enriched life in the kingdom to come. Now you say, what? He says, amen. Y'all say, what? I like it. Go with me to Romans 2. And it's very interesting that Paul brings this up in the beginning. I'll be honest with you, I've had a lot of problems with Romans 2. It's a hard argument to figure out. There's a lot of commentators that give their thoughts on it. I don't think make any sense. I'm not saying I know better than them. But one thing that kind of struck me is, is if I just pull it back and take this passage for what it says plainly, I find that all my problems go away. We know chapter 1, don't we? The world's a terrible place and people do terrible things. Everybody remember the Death Parade series? Boy, we were super encouraged by that, weren't we? Yeah. But the world's a horrible place. 
And what's interesting is the transition that takes place in chapter 2, verse 1, is the idea of those people, regardless of who they are, believer or unbeliever, if you stand in judgment of other people, you have no right to do that because you're probably guilty of the very sins that you're pointing out in other people. I've actually noticed that the things that irritate me the most about y'all are the things that irritate me about myself. And what's the problem there? Me. None of us are in a self-righteous position. So Paul wants to make sure that the self-righteous people aren't so busy pointing at other people that they think somehow they get a pass. No, you don't get a pass. And look what he says in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That'll get a self-righteous person's attention. Stubborn and unrepentant. Now, we don't know anybody like that, do we? Right? They're probably not related to us either, those people that we don't know. Everybody tracking with me? I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. Stick with me. So now he's going to give you, since he's talking about the subject of judgment, he's going to give you some generalization here. And he's actually going to use a literary device here to explain what he means. So here is the main heading he's going to talk about. Verse 6. Notice what it looks, uh, what, what we have here. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? If you're a believer, he's going to reward you according to your deeds. All of us will stand as believers before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we've lived in the body, whether good or bad. It will be brought into account. This is why grace is not a license to sin. There's still consequences for what you do. Lake of fire and hell is not one of them. Lack of intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, a withholding of blessing on your life, the idea that you will reap consequences that are difficult for you to get out of. God didn't give it, well, I can just go out and do whatever I want to and nothing will happen now. Who told you that? You've been saved from the lake of fire, not from being dumb. That doesn't make any sense. So judgment's going to happen for the unbeliever. It's going to happen at the great white throne. How do we know that? Because a book, singular, is open in Revelation 20, which is the book of life. But there are also books, plural, that are opened. And each one was judged according to what they had done in the body. The fact that they're at the great white throne shows us that they never believed in Christ. That's why they're there and not at the judgment seat of Christ. Guess what? Christ is the judge over both of them. All judgment has been committed to the Son. John chapter 5. So if that is the case, it's not a question of whether or not they're going to the lake of fire. They're going. The question is, because of the works done in the body for someone who wasn't saved or denied the gospel, refused to believe the gospel is, what is that experience of damnation and torment going to be like for you? Were you given grand revelation to the word of God and you rejected it outright? You refused to listen? You didn't want to pay attention to anything that was said? Guess what? It's going to be infinitely worse for you there. There are actually degrees of punishment at the great white throne that are going to take place in the lake of fire. Now understand this. People there are not judged because of sins. Sin was judged on the cross for every person. They're there because they don't have life. And that's the only suitable place for someone who doesn't have life is a place of death. That's important. Now, with that being said, each person's going to get a judgment. Saved, 
Judgment seat of Christ, unsaved, great white throne judgment. Every person's judge, no person gets out of it, okay? Now, watch how this goes, because seven and ten are parallels. Eight and nine are parallels. In fact, if you were doing literary structure studies on the scriptures, you would label this seven, you would label an A next to it, capital A. Eight, you would put B. And then nine, you would put B, apostrophe. And then 10, A, apostrophe. It's an A-B-B-A pattern. Now, that's not a Swedish band that I'm talking about. I'm talking about literary devices. Okay, no dancing queens in here. Here we go, verse seven. To those who by perseverance and doing good, and that's how you chose to live your life, seek for glory and honor and immortality, what's the result? What's it say? Eternal life. A reward to be earned based on how you lived your life here and now. Now we go to the B section for those people who are unregenerate. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Now here's the B apostrophe section for the unregenerate. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Now we move to the regenerate, the A apostrophe section. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now here's the mistake that's made. The mistake is made as they say, wait a second, if we understand eternal life as something to be earned, then that's real easy. All you do is you say that a believer who believes in Christ, the result of that is supposed to be not just salvation, but the fact you're going to see that works are going to be evident in their life, and therefore their works prove or evidence of the fact that they're really regenerate. Now, my first question is, is who gets to judge that? You? Me? Let's hope not. I'd be like, yeah, they're not saved. That's usually how we disqualify people. We become their judges. Should believers in Christ do good works? Yes. Does everybody know they start out as babies? How many good works do infants do? Do you think they ultimately cultivate a love? Not when they're screaming at you for a bottle, they're not. Good night. And that's something that has to be discipled, and they have to grow up in the faith. And that is the church's job for meeting with baby Christians and discipling them to maturity. We should be making disciples. So the idea, number two, that works would be the result of your faith is to make it an indispensable part of the equation and you actually have a work salvation. The equation is not faith plus Jesus equals works. The equation is faith plus Jesus equals eternal life. Free and full acceptance, justification before God, forgiveness of sins, those are all things, but the idea that you will guarantee to demonstrate works so that somebody else who's walking around in this fleshly vehicle can give you the okay that you're saved, that sounds like religion to me, not relationship with Jesus. That's a distortion of the gospel. So now if we see this idea that eternal life can actually be a reward to be gained, let's look at a couple of other situations. Turn with me to Galatians 6. Same author. Paul wants to write. If you haven't read Galatians lately, do it. It'll free you up. It's a good book. Galatians 6. He starts this chapter out talking about a brother or sister that may be caught in sin. 
they probably presented the members of their bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. And he says, those of you that are spiritual, those of you that are submitting your bodies as instruments of righteousness, go and call that person to repentance. But beware so that you're not tempted. And then he tells you, think soberly about yourself. Don't puff yourself up. Make yourself to be more than you are. And then we hit verse 7. Watch what he says. Do not be deceived. Now remember, he's talking to Christians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For, here's the explanation, the one who sows to his own flesh. Everybody see that? There's the goal and the motivation. A person who sows to their own flesh is a person who is submitting the instruments of their body for unrighteousness. It's the same idea. The flesh meeting the requirements or the desires of the flesh, that's my goal. And so therefore, it's propelling me. That's the engine that's moving me forward to reach that goal. Look what he says about that. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's the result. This word corruption is an interesting and serious word. It's the idea of not just devastation or ruin or decay, but it was the word that they used in the first century to talk about miscarriages and abortions. That's how serious that is. It's the idea that for a Christian to submit themselves to sin and for sin to be their master and they're obeying sin in their life, you can guarantee this. It's going to be ruin when it meets fruition. But then he gives us some hope. Notice what he says, but to the one who sows to the Spirit, that's your goal and your motivation, so you're submitting the members of your body as instruments of righteousness, will from the Spirit reap, what is it? Eternal life. It's a gift, It's a, sorry, it's a reward that will be given to you as a result of you sowing your life to the Spirit. There are a lot of people I love Evan Hopkins. He's a great writer. Old, old, old 1800s. He brought this up. There's a lot of people who are separated from the world Christians, but you find that it's really hard for them to be separated from themselves Christians. And I think that's an interesting thing that this all falls in line with, is when we're sowing to the Spirit, notice what the opposite is? is sowing to the what? Notice it doesn't say sin. Does everybody see that? It says flesh. The desires that we have as people who were formerly apart from Jesus. It's the who you used to be dead person that you're trying to entertain. Don't sow to that. It leads nowhere. And God doesn't use it. Instead, sow to the Spirit. Why? Because there's nothing but fruitfulness to be had and reward to be lavish. God is a gracious giver. He wants to give to his children. Sow in that direction. Eternal life, it's the idea of a rich life, an abundant life here. Why? Because it's a reward to be earned through faithfulness. Look what he says here in verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Everybody see how doing good is associated with that? He says, for, here's the explanation, in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. If you don't grow, if you, if you don't stop, if you don't give up, Now, is that rooted in you? No, it's rooted in the idea that I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God through Christ. That is my identity. And if I stick with my identity and believe what the scripture has said, this stuff just happens. It's just God separating me for himself and holiness, what he does. And guess what? He wants to give me reward only because I believe him and things are happening. 
That's insane. Who deserves a life like that? No one. I don't. Maybe you do. I can tell you this, I don't. And yet, what do I see page after page? He wants to give, and he wants to give. And he's saying, you know what? If you just trust me even more. You don't just trust me with your eternal destiny. You trust me with how you're living in the here and now. I will make your eternal destiny so mind-blowing you won't even understand it. I will manifest my son in you now amongst people. Anybody know what that's called? It's called revival. That's what it's called. When the church of God believes what their Savior has done for them, really believes it, not just getting in the door, not just he carried us over the threshold and then he dropped us off, He treats his bride better than that. He takes us all the way. He takes us all the way. He invites us to go all the way. Notice what he says here in verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, now pay attention to that because that deals with timing. And you know what that's talking about? Your life right now. While you have the opportunity, while I have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. All people. What does the word all mean here? All. I love it. It wasn't confusing. Nobody got messed up on that. Now look around. If there's anybody you don't particularly like or there's no one that you don't particularly know, guess what? Do good to them. Do good to them. You have the opportunity. Do it. Now, take advantage of this time to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know what that means? Be good to lost people. Take care of your brothers and sisters. Be a giver to them so that God will be a giver to you. I promise you, you won't lack anything. I promise you that when you set yourself out to be an encouragement and to build up other people, guess what? You get built up and encouraged in the process. It's the way God works. It's the way he happens. And you sit back and you look, this wouldn't have happened any other way except that it's God's hand working. That's it. What time we have? My wife told me, don't preach too short. Don't leave me out there. She did. She did. Everybody turned you guys don't believe that. First Timothy, she did. First Timothy 6. We're going to look at two more instances, and then we're going to, now put your three-minute sign down, Mitch. We have a sign up there that says three minutes. He decided to hold it up. We're going to look at two more instances by the same author. Everybody look. First Timothy 6. Let's start in verse 6 so we get a running start. But godliness, and if you have the New American Standard, that word actually is in the italics. It really isn't needed there. You can circle it and just put a little slash through it. That way you can still read it, but it doesn't need to be there. Look what it says here. But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. What's a means of great gain? What is it? Let's read the verse one more time so I can ask you an obvious question and you give me an obvious answer. Here it is. But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. What is a means of great gain? Godliness. What does godliness have to do with the flesh? Nothing. Not a thing. But notice, godliness is great gain. Anybody know what this is talking about? Eternal life. It's great gain. When it's met with contentment, look what it says. For, here's an explanation. We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Anybody ever done any research on the pharaohs when they were buried? They put them in those grand sarcophagus, man. We've seen like King Tut's tomb. 
gold, snakes, bars, whatever he's holding, right? And it's just like, wow, that's really brilliant. You open that up, there's a dead guy in there. And not only that, but he was buried with like 20,000 cats. He was buried with like chariots. He was buried with riches and gold and all this stuff. And guess what? When we found him, we just put all that junk in a museum. He didn't bring it with him and he can't take it with him. He's dead. What were they thinking? How many of you want to be buried with something? No, because y'all get cremated and that's strange. Sorry, how many of y'all want to be burned up with something? Some of you do. Weird. Move on. We brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it. Notice, he's showing us the proper perspective of the material. It's here for a time. Don't let it become obsessive. Look at verse 8. If we have food and covering or shelter, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Why? Because they decided to use the members of their bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Here's the explanation. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, does everybody see the fleshly desire just oozing out of that word? For longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many grieves. Why is that? Because you can't serve God in money. Somebody else wins. And if you're going to scratch that itch, you'll scratch it. So you got to be careful with that. Now notice it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of it not recognizing that it's a material possession that you are in stewardship with because everything you have actually belongs to God. It's not yours. That's a completely different mindset, but that's what it is to submit the members of your body as instruments for righteous reasons. Now watch how this moves forward here. Verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, and perseverance, and gentleness. Notice that all of those things become tangible, but they're actually intangibles. Talks a lot more about the cultivation of your character. What's amazing is, is that when Jesus Christ is living his life through you, all that stuff just happens. That's what's amazing. You don't have to, God, please give me patience. I've told you this before. Stop praying for patience. He's not going to give it to you. He's already given it to you in his son. In Christ, I can be patient in this situation. There's the mindset. There's the truth claim. Name it and claim it. Uh Uh-oh. Any of you get weird? It's true. It's the truth. Believe it. Use it. And notice what he says here. Flee from these things. Flee from these. Escape these fleshly things. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the... What's it say? Eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Is he surrounded this with works or is that a free gift? Take hold of it. Make it your own. Make it part and parcel of who you are. Embrace it. Employ it. Put it to use. Don't just sit there in it. It's a free gift that you can keep unwrapping the more you keep submitting yourself to the Son. Drop down with me to 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited and to fix their hope on the uncertainty 
of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Forsake the material and look giver of good things is the idea. Notice it's a mindset to take place. We're either convinced of that or we're not. Look what he says, verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in what? Good works. Notice that works is around it. Good works. To be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Out ahead. Why? So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So that they can live the abundant life and it reap the rewards that they will get paid back the rewards when they stand before the king. Now this little rest stop that we're taking here is going to deal with the whole idea of manifesting the depths of what works look like for a Christian. And we're going to surround it with the language of Romans 6. If we've died to sin and we're alive to God in Christ, what is the choice that you are making every day to present your body as an instrument of righteousness. In fact, if you remember last week, I asked you to pray something, that that would be our application, is to come to God and state his word before him, pray his word before him. Lord, I know that I'm dead to sin. I know that I'm alive to you in Christ. And I don't want to present the members of my body as instruments from unrighteousness. Instead, I want to present them for your use for righteous purposes. How can this body be used for your glory? I think that's a sound prayer. I think that's an everyday prayer. And what we see is not only does the Lord give us eternal life as a free gift, he guarantees and seals up your future. There's no reason to worry about that whatsoever. But what's amazing is he says, my child, I want to give you more and more and more. And I'm going to tell you this. There's nothing wrong with wanting more if God's going to give it. Nothing. In fact, I would say this. I think this is what the problem with the church is in America. Is that where we're content with what we have, we don't want more, and yet God wants to give it. How can we manifest the demonstration of the Spirit? How can we manifest the life of Christ in our lives to all the people that are around us that we've been networked with divinely by God's providence if we don't want more out of our Christian experience than what we're getting? He's already given you all things freely to enjoy, but notice what he says. Devote yourself to these things. Invest yourself in these things. Submit yourself to these things and look for God to do the work through you. Why? Because he wants to reward and bless and he wants to give you an abundant life. Here's the question. Do you want it? He wants to give it. That's not a question. Well, what do I have to do in order to get it? Trust him? Believe him? He told me not to use my body for that. I don't have to anymore. Instead, use it for him. Great. Lord, use me. You realize how dangerous of a prayer that is? He might actually move you to Wisconsin. Do you want to be used? Are you being used by the Lord? It might cost me too much. I promise you, the material things that you want to hold on here are going to burn up. They're inferior. They're nothing. 
compared to the depth of the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Have we plunged those depths? Do we want that difference? Are we useful to God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your mercy abounds. Your scripture is clear. It challenges us and encourages us to want more. Father, I pray that we have a very sober assessment of ourselves right now. Do we want more? It is a beautiful and wonderful thing to know that we are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. But I pray that we would not just settle for being saved. And that we would recognize the areas of our life, that you would bring them to our minds and that you would pierce our hearts with the areas of our lives that have not submitted to your Lordship, that we try to keep you out of, that we refuse to let go of and relinquish so that you can do your divine work in conforming us to the image of Jesus. Maybe it's an area of our, of our thought life. Maybe it's the fact of some of the things that we listen to. Maybe it's a places where our eyes wander. Maybe we're coming to a very serious realization that our hearts long for many other things before they long for you. So Father, I pray that you would tear down these idols in our lives. That you would reign supreme. That we would submit to your grace and your authority. That we would recognize that you've already set us up for success in all these areas. That we are not lacking. We are complete in Christ. That's who we are. And I pray that we would desire to live a full life, an abundant life that we would take hold of eternal life. Father, I pray that you work on our hearts. Convince us this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.